Welcome to the What's Your Thoughts on This podcast. I'm your host, Amir Ali. The title of today's episode is Double Crossed, the story of George Johnson. This is an episode you don't want to miss. But hey, before you do anything, before you do anything, make sure you subscribe and share this episode with a friend. God bless you, everyone. What's up, world? Welcome to the What's Your Thoughts on This podcast. I'm your host, Amir Ali. I'm an opinionated fat boy from the west side of Detroit. I was groomed in Chicago and shaped in New York, but in my heart, Paris is home. Join me on my quest to get answers and gain clarity on a plethora of controversial topics, current events, and political issues. It's a lot going on in the world that I want to discuss, so please take a listen and tell me your thoughts. Tell me what's your thoughts on, what's your thoughts on this, what's your thoughts on? Some say that blood is thicker than water, but what do you do when it's your blood that turns against you and tries to destroy you? My guest today, George Johnson, knows this experience firsthand. George Johnson, a father, an entrepreneur, basketball star and author of the book Double Crossed vividly shared how he was double crossed by not one but two of his family members. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome George Johnson to the show. Thank you for coming today, George. Definitely, man. I appreciate the opportunity. You have a very interesting story and I want to jump right into it. Where are you from? I'm from Richmond, Virginia. You're an author. Right. Definitely. What's the name of your book? Double Cross. It's my memoir. It covers my whole life. It goes specifically into the last four or five years of my life and the experience I went through, you know, dealing with my family. Wow. So what happened? I'm the baby boy of five. Two of us share the same mother. The other ones, we have the same father, but we all grew up as just full brothers, um, you know, playing rec football, basketball, hanging out, whatever the case may be. I just turned 34, but basically my two oldest brothers turned into a federal informant to help themselves out. And it kind of just flipped my life upside down. The mental component. So wait, 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 wait. Hold on a second. So two of your brothers turned into federal informants. Correct. What does that mean? So basically, you know, if people don't know a lot when it comes to that world, just dealing with the FBI and you become a target and you get in some federal criminal doings, you can leverage yourself or leverage people around you um, or friends or people you've been in business with to help yourself out with your situation. And both of my brothers did that. They became federal informants against you? Specifically, I became the big piece in their case, correct. They tried to put their their situations on me. Well, let's rewind a little bit. So in order for your brothers to be able to become federal informants, then that means that you had to be doing something. Correct. So you grew up in uh, in Virginia. Correct. Did you grow up with your mom and your dad? In-house, it was just me and one of my brothers that were involved in this. My father wasn't in my house. He was irrelevant. You know, he, he was very much irrelevant um, in sports and everything. I played basketball my whole life. Basketball was my life from being small all the way up to, you know, going to play professionally cross seed. So 
that was the that's what happened in my household. We were basketball, basketball, football, football, basketball, basketball. You said your father was irrelevant or relevant? Relevant. I'm sorry. Okay. Relevant. Yeah, relevant. So, so, but you didn't grow up in the household with your mom and dad together. Your dad stayed outside of the home. Correct. Correct. Okay. You play basketball, mm-hmm. and did you go to college or anything after uh, high school? Yeah, high school. I actually didn't finish in a regular normal normal setting. I got recruited to go to a prep school, which was out in the mountains. I got recruited to go there as a big recruit for basketball. I ended up leaving it. Well, so you're pretty good then. Yeah, I'm very good. Okay. <laughs> so um, I was able to get a full ride at a small school. Uh, I became like the star on campus. I took my team, my school to the NCAA tournament. In my book, I kind of detail, uh, give details on, you know, what prevented me from going to play professionally cross seas. Um, and then I entered into the workforce working for my brother. And that's kind of how I got attached to the stuff that he was doing. I actually started working for him. You're in school. Mm-hmm. You go to the NCAA championships. Correct. Right? Did you guys win? Oh, uh, we lost in the Elite Eight. Okay, but you made it there. Correct. Did you graduate college? Yep, I got a degree in business, minor in accounting. Okay. So what happened after you graduated college? I had an opportunity to go play cross seas. I actually was gearing up to go work out in Las Vegas. Um, and my best friend uh, graduated the same year. We were back home in Richmond, Virginia. To make a long long story short. Well, we don't have to shorten the story. We had okay. to tell the story. <laughs> got you, got you. Um, we were celebrating. We was in the club. We had our, cele- our um, graduation money on us and everything. Um, I ended up leaving the, the pack that I was traveling in. Went down this alleyway to use the bathroom. I had another guy with me. We ended up leaving out the alleyway and five guys walked up on the guy that was with me. It's a rule of thumb where I'm from. If you see some guys that you was with get into something, even if you outnumber, you go and, and you get into it. I went to go help him. He ended up running. I was kind of now stuck in the situation at gunpoint. Ended up fighting my way out of the situation. Luckily, I didn't get shot or anything. I immediately got out of town the next morning. Got back to school and found out that my whole thumb, my whole um, thumb ligament was torn, mm. which. I basically lost my contract to go play professionally in Slovakia. It was a, a low point in my life because my whole life, you know, I, you're building up to graduate and now go play professionally. And that's where my dreams kind of got flipped. So when you, you saw that you had tore the ligaments, it wasn't a situation where it would heal over time or you were permanently damaged? It's a small window coming from a small school to get your opportunity, right? To go play professionally cross seas. When I had to go work out for the professional team, I was still going to be in the cast. Okay. My agent basically was like, you know, man, if you get healed, maybe next year we can try to get you on a team or something like that. But you get a small window of opportunity. You got to be ready when that opportunity comes. And if you're not, it's kind of tough getting back. Were you in Slovakia at this time when they told you that? No, I was in Richmond preparing to get ready to uh, work out for uh, actually a couple other teams. But the for sure contract I had was Slovakia. So how did you feel once you realized that you weren't going to be able to go to Slovakia and probably anywhere for the next year or so? It was probably the first time I had dealt with just deep, deep, like, depression. Okay. At that point in my life, I didn't really know, you know, my peers and, and where I, being aware of these symptoms of how to deal with kind of those low points, um, I didn't really know how to deal with that. But I kept pushing. I kept working out. 
I was able to play semi-pro here in America, but it was for like Chrome. It, it wasn't for, you know, um, nothing substantial. When did that happen? How long was it after your injury that you were able to play semi-pro? I was out for three months. Just so happened they started an ABA semi-pro team in Richmond where I was from. I was kind of the superstar on that team. And they, we were able to start a team and, and start a franchise there in Richmond. But like I say, any beginning of franchise team, people don't know, it's, you're struggling. You, you're getting yeah. $50 a game. And, um, you know, my mindset was always about just being in entrepreneurship. Even though it wasn't basketball, I just knew that, that kind of money wasn't where I wanted to transition to with now a degree and all those type of things. So after three months, you were able to play real basketball. Correct. Correct. Did you reach back out to the people in Slovakia or to your agent to try to see if you could renew those dreams? I did, and that circuit, it's like a two-month two window where those teams cross um, seats pick up their players for the next, for the upcoming year, and that window had kind of closed. The teams that wanted me kind of found other people to um, move forward with. Yeah, wow. Yeah. So you're playing on this semi-pro team in America, and you know, you're not happy with the money that you're making. How did you get involved into some not so good dealings? That's the thing, I, I wasn't aware that I was getting involved in something that wasn't um, too good. My brother, which, you know, 10 years older than me, uh, was, a, was a McDonald All-American. He was one of the top recruited players coming out of high school. So your brother played basketball too? Correct, he okay. was a superstar. I grew up my whole life idolizing him. He's who I wanted to be like. He ended up playing professional basketball cross seas in South America. He went to VCU. So he kind of was there at that point, like letting me know, like, man, I got a company now here in Northern Virginia. You could come here and start making money. You know, I, I'll give you have an office job. And so that's what I did. He had a he had a mental health outpatient company. And so simultaneously, while I was playing semi-pro, I'm, I'm working with him in Northern Virginia, commuting back and down two hour drive playing semi-pro, traveling, but still working with him. Okay, and what were you doing for him? Um, office jobs, just ba office job, punching holes, you know, little going to get the coffee, going to get the donuts type stuff. But at the same time, learning the industry that he was in, I didn't know anything about mental health. And yeah. I, I for sure didn't know anything how to run a business. But you might be able to touch an degree. I don't know your journey, but... You know, being 10 years, a 10 year gap between brothers, think about it, when we're in the house together, he's 17, I'm seven. Yeah. You're not knowing the character or the, uh, the principles that someone 17 is operating on. You don't know how they're handling people or how they operate Definitely. in the world. Yeah. You're just, you're seven and your brother is a superstar. Yeah. So that's all you know. And so I'm now, Life has trans transitioned to now. I'm a I'm a man now. I'm grown. I'm 22, 23 years old, out of school, and now we're now living together, and I'm seeing them in a different light. Well, how did like it come that. that you guys were living together? So when I finished and, and I realized that I wasn't going to play cross seas, we moved into a where well, he was already living in an apartment, but he allowed he allowed me to come live with him in Northern Virginia. Okay, and that's how you started working for him because you were living with exactly. him. He knew that you okay. Exactly. Um, and so, you know, and I'm commuting after work two hours to Richmond to play semi-pro. On the weekends, we had games, and that's kind of how it went. So I'm, I'm now at his company, learning his business, learning the industry to a certain extent. I'm still a young guy out of school. I'm enjoying being in the D.C., Northern Virginia area. And 
me and him just started not clicking. How I was living my life and how he was living his just wasn't matching anymore. I mean, well, it wasn't matching. I was still on a, you know, I'm still working out every day. I'm living a whole different kind of life. And so it started clashing because how he was treating, you know, employees and every and his friends. How was he that, treating employees? Man, he was just a bad guy. Uh, he was a liar. He was, you know, stealing from them. And I was always end up being the bridge between the, all these employees and him. Like, uh, for example, a very defining moment I speak about in the book. Um, it's a it's a popular uh, strip club in northern in, in DC called um, Stadium. And so um, it was a I, it was a place where my brother hung out with, uh, a lot. And so it was always it was a bad relationship between him and the employees. But like I said, I was always mending the two because they knew it was my brother and they knew that I was I was for them. But it was this Friday that my brother used to always pay people short. Like, so if they're supposed to get paid $2,500, he'll say, you're only getting $1,500, and yeah, I'll get you the other half when I get you the other half. And so this was always happening, always happening. And um, this night, we happened to be in the, in the stadium, the strip club. And I, I was the young guy, and I used to hang out with my older brothers. And so this night, I left the section that we were in, and I was going to the bathroom, and this girl that I was real close with, her name was Brittany, her husband uh, tapped me on my shoulder. DC guy, street orientated, I could already tell. And he basically told me that, you know, what me and my brother had been doing for the past year, it was gonna end the night and somebody was gonna get killed. And so mm. in the midst of this in the midst of this interaction, Brittany, the girl that I knew came over and she was like kinda get her her husband's attention, like, nah, it's not him, it's his brother, it's his brother. And in that moment, it's kind of like a man versus man. And he was kind of ignoring her. And so it basically was like, y'all need to figure that out. Or like, y'all not leaving the body here. I ended up still going to the bathroom and, and like 10 minutes in there, like, like what am I going to do? Because shit, we, we in something right now. So he was telling you that basically he was going to kill one of you mm-hmm. because he was upset about the things that were occurring at your brother's company. Correct. They could literally sit in the general population watching my brother and his friends throw thousands of dollars, right? After letting her know that she wasn't gonna get all this money for whatever our reason he had made up. I ended up leaving out the bathroom and the guy actually came back over to me and was like, man, Brittany came and told me it's not you, that the issue not with you, but it's with your brother and, his, and, and him. So you told your brother that, did you told him that somebody wanted to kill him? Correct. What was Correct. his response? A cocky, like, hey, man, like, shut up, don't worry about them. They, they ain't fuck them. They don't have no money. It was that kind of response. And so what did you say to that? Keep in mind the setting. I tried to kind of reiterate. It, I just was ignored. Were you nervous? I was nervous, not to, to the extent that I was originally, because the guy was, like, telling me, Brittany, made it clear it wasn't you. You kind of helped her out. But your brother, I feel like this about your brother. I remember getting out of there. I remember not staying for when they left and I left. And I remember being definitive that I need to figure out another way to live and try to go my separate way just in life. I started saving with my money. I had at that point learned the industry that we were in, the mental health space. I ended up finding a, a friend that stayed in the projects in Northern Virginia. He was going to he was going to school. And he was like, man, if you just pay me $200 a month, that'll cover the rent here. And uh, I saved up my money for the next nine months months to uh, find a clinical person to help me start my own business. So you moved out with your brother and you moved in with your friend. So you moved into the projects? 
Correct. What did your brother say when you were leaving? Did he ask you why you were leaving? Yeah, I, I mean, his relationship was already as strained. Just the stuff that he wanted me to do, how he felt about people I hung with, just how he was living his life. Me and his, me and his relationship was dwindling very, like, but we was fist fighting. It was already going left. That was just a defending moment that I was, I made that I was going to just go my separate way. So he was probably happy that you left. Correct. <laughs> okay. So you stand in the projects with your friend and you mm-hmm. said that you found someone to assist you with your portion of the business. I was able to find a consultant after saving up for nine months. I yeah. saved up $20,000 to find a consultant to help me start my own mental health outpatient company. Okay. And so that's what I did. I had an opportunity to transition back to Richmond, Virginia, which is a two hour drive from where we were living. I moved back to Richmond, Virginia, started going. My business started booming. I ended up employing, you know, my friends, people, young people just like me. Then uh, the opportunity came for me to move to Houston, where, where I am now. And I was able to get a contract with the Houston Independent School District for my services for 10 years. Houston has the biggest school district in the nation, one of the top three. So this okay. gave me access for my services to be amongst maybe 150,000 kids. Wow. My life took off. I started another company. I had my company back in Richmond. I started the company here and I just started booming. And so at that point, me and my brother won't speak. And I hadn't spoken to my brother in maybe like a year or two. Okay. You know, I still have relationships still close to employees that were working for him. They started calling like, man, what's up, man? I know you're in Houston doing good. I'm like, man, I love it. I'm like, what y'all doing back there? They were like, man, the feds been interviewing people. And I'm like, damn, that's crazy. But... (laughs) I'm long gone. I don't even talk to my brother anymore. Yeah. That went on for like a year or two. Me speak, reaching back, talking to people back home. Just friends. They're just like, yo, like, it's crazy. Like, the feds are like up here in D.C., Northern Virginia. Like, it's a whole lot of stuff going on. At this point, I'm making $20,000, $25,000 a week. My life has changed. My mom don't work anymore. My, my mutual, my, me and my brother's mutual mother don't work anymore. I'm paying her. I'm giving her $8,000 a month. My life has totally changed. All of a sudden, people kept getting contacted around me to the point that it came down to this one day, the federal government called me and said, hey, you need to get an attorney. Um, You are being investigated. And at that point... Did they say what you were being investigated for? No, not at the time. Not at the time. I only could conclude that I was being associated in some kind of way with your brother. brother. Right. Man, life just started going just flipped upside down at that point uh i had to find an attorney it cost uh, me fifty thousand dollars just to um engage with them uh i ended up spending nearly three hundred thousand dollars over a span of four years you went to go find an attorney did you know what type of attorney you needed like like what was that like uh, i had got a little small attorney that cost me like three thousand dollars and i went to have a conversation with the uh, federal government and they call it, I forgot the actual term that they use, but it's actually when they reveal or why they let you know why you're being targeted. And I did have an attorney at that point, and I went and sat down with the federal government, and basically it was a spoof that the whole meeting was set up for me to take a plea for eight years. They basically brought me into this federal court building, downtown Richmond. It was like 10 agents. Uh, the sheriff bring you in there. Um, I had my attorney in there. They had all these documents on the on the on the table, a long table that fit like maybe thirty people. They stage it as if you get to speak or kind of you know kind of have a, a conversation. They clear up some stuff, but um, 
it didn't go like that. They basically came in and was like, look, they opened these files and closed them and said, hey, we got all this documents is to lock you up for uh, eight years, but we'll let you take a plea for four. For what? They basically said that I was uh, defrauding the government and um, I was part of a fraud scheme for billing Medicaid. With your current company with or with, brother, your, no, with, with your brother's brother, company? With my brother's company. Were you part owner of the company? No, I wasn't. I was just an employee. But uh, we were overwhelmed. We didn't know why or why would they think that. My attorney wasn't equipped for this type of stuff. Yeah. I remember my attorney asking, can we brief outside? My attorney was trying to tell me, man, go ahead, take a plea for four years. Life was just going that fast. I remember looking at him, telling him, are you fucking serious? Like, what? He was like, man, whatever they got, they got a lot of stuff. We can't compete with them. I remember um, going in there, it was intense. I kept asking them, could I clarify some stuff? They kept telling me anything I say with any lie. Each lie I tell them would be a felony. They told me that it's nothing I really could say. It was in my best interest to take a plea right then and there to sign for four years. And I remember saying, you know, my t- going against my attorney words, saying that, no, I'm not doing it. And um, I left. Uh, at that point, they, they, you know, I wasn't officially charged, so I could leave. So you weren't officially charged and they let you leave. Were you nervous that they wouldn't let you leave initially? Yeah, I was. Yeah. Um, I was, and um, they basically told me if I left, my plea was off the table. Um, mm. But it was just in my gut feeling to just leave to get out of there. At any point, did you think about taking the plea? It's crazy, man, because I'd be a fool to say that I wasn't. But at the end of the day, I knew that I hadn't did. I didn't do anything wrong. Yeah. And in that moment, it flashed back in my mind on why the feds never lose. And the reason they never lose is, is two reasons. One, most of the time, people don't have enough money to defend themselves. Yeah. That's one. And for two, most of the time, people are doing things they aren't going to do, and they just feel like, you know what, before the real stuff come out, let me just just settle this right now and, yeah. and, and minimize it as much as possible. But at that point in time, I, I had nearly $600,000 in the bank. I knew that I hadn't done anything wrong that I was aware of. You know, I was willing to, to take a leap of faith on my on my own. Yeah, you left the um, the meeting <laughs> that they had with you, and then you said you you called your mom. I actually went to my mother's house. You know, going into that meeting, my mom was feeling like, man, you get to talk to them and clear this up and and, and, and get them on the same page because they clearly got something incorrect. And so that was my mom's notion. It was like a good thing going into that meeting. And I remember getting to my mother's home and telling her what what had transpired. That was the first time I saw my mom like drop down and uh, like start throwing up, like of just being just distraught. And at that point we had knew that this was coming from my brother and my brother was making a definitive decision to basically say that um, he didn't control this company, I did. He didn't have no knowledge of anything in this company for years. And that was his angle of when they had came to him. And basically that's what I was dealing with. And he had countered me and, and uh, created a narrative that as if that I ran his company and I hadn't even spoke to my brother in three or four years. So was your brother locked up at this time? No, he wasn't. He was actually out. He actually hadn't went to sentencing yet. Okay, so they charged him, mm-hmm. but he wasn't sentenced, but yeah. he was blaming you for everything. Exactly. And his whole narrative, his whole narrative of his whole case was that 
I was the cause of, of this the fraud in the government uh, situation. I think it was $3.5 million. You know, at that point, my mom, I told my mom what my attorney said. We, I immediately just cut him off. We had found the one only attorney on the whole East Coast that had uh, beat the federal government in the last 10 years. And so for me to even introduce myself to him, I had to bring an actual cashier's check of $50,000 just to share Just with to retain him. him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just to share with him um, what my situation was and could he just pause it for a second while we regroup. I was able to find him. I owe him a lot. That's Mr. Dinkins. We sat down. I shared with him. He knew exactly who the prosecutors were. He used to be a prosecutor and he kind of, he, he caused it, slow the process down. Like, let's pause this. Let's slow it down and let and let's really make them do their due diligence and let me do my due diligence on my end to lay everything on the table, explain to him all the dynamics, where everything. And man, it went on for three years of that space of where the feds at that point just started flipping my life upside down. They subpoenaed Wells Fargo, which Wells Fargo was my personal banker at that time, banking and all my businesses and everybody attached to me got kicked out of Wells Fargo, got subpoenaed. Um, I got a phone call one day, West Fargo Corporate called me and said I had 24 hours to come get all of my cash from any branch that I wanted to go to. So what about your, your companies at, in Texas? Were they still running while this was going on? Yeah, they were still running. Um, my attorney immediately made me get a CPA and we changed, we took my name off all the businesses and put them in people uh, um, that I trusted and ownership. So I took my, my I, I sold the companies technically. Yeah because we didn't know what were to come. Yeah. The Fed started coming to my office here in Houston, Texas. They subpoenaed all documents that were mailed in and out of that office building. They started attacking my, my daughter's mother at that, at that time. Attacking her how? They came to her. My, my daughter was living in Philadelphia at that time. Someone showed up at her door, asked her you know, all these questions. Wow. My credit score, I lost 300 points. I had an 805. I went down to a 500. They basically stripped you of just everything. And those are things that people don't understand once you start fighting the federal government. It's what they do to your life. They flip it upside down. And so that went on for three years. And what about your brother? So during this time, did he ever get sentenced in between that time while all of this stuff was happening to you? Yeah. So his case eventually came out in the news. It was a big thing. It came out in the news. It had me labeled as um, um, co-conspirator one. They couldn't name me yet because I wasn't officially charged. Uh, He was charged. It was front uh, news. At the time, my mom had made a decision, and this is kind of where my family just started falling apart. My mom was like, look, I'm going to start recording our conversations and everything. So it was this whole situation where everybody was trying to help me out because we knew what was going on. How long did your brother get? He ended up getting sentenced five years. So he was sentenced for five years while you were still trying to fight your case. Exactly. Okay. And then your mother started recording your phone, the phone conversations she was having with who? With my brother to try to make sure if I, we were to go to trial, we would have, I would have evidence. Got it. So there was a lot of stuff. And like I said, the feds just started going through my whole life, everything, um, subpoenaing everything. I went through a lot of mental ups and downs. It, I had reached a point where I had flew from Richmond to D.C. And mentally, I was just drained. I sat outside his house for, for three days, like with my gun and everything. For your brother's house? Yeah, looking for my, yeah, but he never came. 
But before that happened, when did you find out? Because you said it was two of your brothers that had um, turned against you. When did you know for sure that it was your brothers that were saying this? Because, you know, sometimes people get caught up in things, you know, and Mm -hmm. you're just guilty by association. When did you know for sure that it was your brothers that were saying that you were involved? So it was a plot twist. Um, my oldest brother at the time, the brother that the situation that where we at in the whole timeline of things, he is my next to oldest brother. And so my oldest brother at the time was was a confidant for me. He was he was um, somebody I leaned on. He was somebody who was like, bro, if I see him, I got you through this. And he was actually someone I, I spoke to every day about the situation that really was, I felt like I, all I had at that moment. And so yeah. at the point at that time, that was like all I had. So you were telling him everything you were doing and all exactly. of that? Everything I was dealing with. Wow. And he wasn't actually part of the situation. And that's why this, the timeline and the story got to keep progressing because at that point, he wasn't even involved in any kind of way. So one day, I'm sitting on my couch here in Houston. It's after three years of uh, fighting and fighting and fighting. At that point, I was like nearly up to $200,000 in, in fees with my attorney and all this type of stuff. My attorney called me one day. I remember sitting on the couch and he was like, you're sitting there, you busy? I was like, you're free? I was like, Mr. Dinkins, what the hell? Let me tell you, yeah, I'm busy. <laughs> you helping me. He was like, man, I've been doing this for 50 something odd years. He was like, I never got a call from the federal prosecutor and they were as aggressive they were with you and they just called me after three years and say, hey, we're going, to, we're going a different way. We're not going to, we're not going to charge George. I remember an awkward silence and, and I remember just the emotional space that I felt. Did you cry? Yeah, I did cry. Yeah. I did cry. He basically was telling me that the fraud charges that they tried to pin on me, they initially tried to give me that to take a plea because at that point, they don't have to do no investigation. They don't yeah. have to do anything. Once you just sign over, it's like, hey, yeah, you're signing over saying you were guilty. If I had signed that, I would have been signing a document basically and they had no proof other than my brother saying this narrative. Yeah. And it was just like how, how sick I felt of just how the system works. Yeah. Because think about how many people that just sign their life away. They do that. Mm-hmm. They didn't do any of that, but they were just scared and they couldn't defend themselves. And the feds actually didn't have nothing on them. I remember that day, man, just my lawyer really couldn't. He just never had saw that before. And he was just like, man, they had to go before the federal judge and, and say that they was going a separate way. And I was asking him, like, they can do that, man? They could just fuck my whole life up and just get me kicked out of West Fargo? He was like, man, they could do whatever they want to do. And I remember just the weight of just man like that day i can't even articulate you know and i remember in the book i just struggled and i just was like man i don't even know how to express like what that felt yeah so that happened were you by yourself when that happened yeah i was by myself okay so when you got off the phone with him Mm -hmm. you know i don't know your if you are a man of faith or what but i know you were confused but what was that feeling was it happiness confusion like what i am a man of faith and i had put not all my faith in an attorney because, you know, no one is for, you know, the Lord. But I had a lot of, like, man, like, this man is speaking on my behalf. Yeah. And he, he couldn't even articulate why and how it could go like this. And so at that moment, I did, I, I, it was a moment, and it's still to this day, just like, that only had to be God. Yeah. Like, that didn't make sense on no shape, form, or fashion. Yeah. How could it go like that? 
And so, man, I remember um, going out here in Houston. Um, I, I, I called my friend up. <laughs> that next week, I ended up buying a new Corvette, a new Range Rover. And um, I kind of had put everything behind me. You know, life was good. Business back, back to, went back together. It was flowing. Seven months later, I remember being in the Corvette. The roof was off, and my attorney called me. You know, if you're in the court and you in the in the Corvette with the roof off, you can't hear. So I had to wait till I got and stopped. And my attorney comes and like, "Hey man, how you?" And I'm thinking that he's just calling me. Like, how you? How's how's it going? Uh, I remember on my retainer, he had owed me like another thousand dollars. I thought he was calling, to let me know he could send it back to me. I was, I was going to tell him like, "Man, keep it." Yeah, this is <laughs> <Yeah>. a tip. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and he was like, "Man, the federal government had came back." And I'm like, what you said? He was like, nah, not even, not for the, the, the fraud stuff that came back with taxes. And I'm like, wow. What do you, what do you mean? Like, how? I, I've, I've been filing my taxes. I filed my taxes. I actually had just sent a check for $113,000 for the previous year. I'm like, nah, it gotta be another confusion. He was like, no nah, man, and they got a witness that's cooperating with them. And I'm like, what you mean? It's my oldest brother is my tax preparer. He was like, your oldest brother is your tax preparer? I was like, yeah, like, how? I'm just totally confused. Yeah. And so, <laughs> what a lot of people don't know is, you don't beat the Fed. But let's say you do beat the federal government. You're not supposed to do that, right? It's the, it's the biggest entity in our land, right? And you're not supposed to beat them. So when they come your way, and if they come, you're supposed to just bow down. But let's say you do, you don't bow down, and you do beat them in a court of law. They're gonna try their best in any kind of way. If you stole a Snickers your fifth grade year when you was walking home from school, if they could find a way to pull up that, and even if it was 40 years ago, they would find a way just to charge you, and they're gonna charge you the max. <laughs> I graduated from college in 2011. It's now 2018, 17, and I had beat the feds. And what the feds ended up doing was going and finding a way to charge me with something. And they went back to my first year of being out of school, which I had three jobs. I had a makeshift job with my brother that I told you I, I had. Yeah. It was a small job. I had two other little jobs that I had picked up to just hustle and just grind, you know, make money, 1099 job. That following year when I filed taxes for that 2012, when I went to my oldest brother, I basically said, hey man, I had three jobs, but I only got two W-2s. I only got two documentation of these jobs. The third one, which was my other brother, which is my oldest brother, he knows. I was like, he never gave me no documentation. And that my brother told me at that point, like, oh man, don't worry about it. Uh, I got it. Me not knowing, you know, I'm meaning, I'm giving my trust and my tax prepare. Yeah. Even on top of that, it's my brother. So it's not just a tax preparer, it's my brother. And yeah, my tax you trust him. Yeah. And this is in 2012. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a child, I'm a young man, fresh out of school. So yeah, my life went on financially. Clearly, I went to another level. You know, I went from making maybe, if you piece together all my jobs that year, maybe $60,000 to now I'm a guy making a million dollars a year. You know, fast forward five, six years later. But what they did, um, you know, behind my back, after I had beat them, they had started going through my tax year, went to my first year, found out that Jermaine, my oldest brother, was my tax preparer, went to him, came to him, 
had a meeting with him saying found out that he did over 200 incorrect tax documents so they did they have a meeting with him like they had with you like when you right. came I, with I him i didn't know this right. no i, I know but i'm saying yeah. is the meeting Correct. with him was it similar to the meeting that you exactly. had when you had your lawyer there and they were presenting documents and stuff exactly okay and they basically went to him uh had over nearly 300 doc 300 incorrect incorrectly done tax documents in front of him and said hey you know what we don't even want you mm. but we could give you eight uh seven years in prison take your business and have a restitution of all these taxes like maybe i think it's nearly like nine hundred thousand dollars but guess what what we would do what will we'll let you keep your business don't charge you brush this under the rug if you testify against your younger brother wow and um that's what he chose to do uh i remember um it's like deja vu once we got to the bottom of this and i realized the timeline of things and when he had a meeting and when he became an informant i was flying home i was um i was calling him he he, he was already working with them so he was also your confidant you said right Correct. so he was your tax preparer and your confidant so while the time that you were confiding in him he mm -hmm. had already turned state evidence exactly uh and so wow so how did that make you feel man when you found out because not only did your oldest brother turn up against you but then you found out that your your well, excuse me not only did your second oldest brother turn against you but now you found out that your oldest brother had turned against you how did that make you feel it broke me it broke me because um that three and a half years that I had went through just what that did into into win and to feel like I got through that and six months go by for it to come at me that hard. I had willed my way through the first journey, right? Yeah. I was just, just speaking myself and just staying confident, staying and having faith. And, and, and like, I knew that at that point in my life was the biggest journey of my life, right? It was the biggest, it was the, it was the biggest mountain that I had to climb. And to get over that, it was, you know, it was like unbelievable. And then for it to come back around and they hit home with my other brother, it, it had knocked me down. Um, it had knocked me down. Um, a lot of stuff that, I, you know, I, I just started drinking. Yeah. I was depressed. I started situations that I now got to do. I, I had two kids in the midst of that. I was just living reckless. Um, I got a, I got a four-year-old daughter now and a four-year-old son that are only a month apart. Um, and it was just mentally where I was at. Yeah, um, you needed a release. Yeah, and I was just wilding. I was just just trying to cope with it. And at that point, I didn't I didn't realize I was depressed, but I was just that's where I was at. And so, you know, at that point, my attorney was was like, man, we could beat this. We could now start another two three years and beat this, and it's gonna cost you another half a million dollars nearly. And we could beat this, and we and and we could do the same thing again. And you're gonna be on that radar again and this could happen again in the next two, three years. And my attorney was like, look, man, they wanna give you two years that they wanna charge you the charge of subscribing subscribing to a false tax document. And it's very the words are very tricky because people are just like, Oh, it was tax evasion. Tax evasion tax evasion is that you don't claim anything and you just skip the year and act like you didn't make money. Subscribing to a false tax document is saying that you claim but you unreclaimed. 
you say that you made fifty thousand, but you made eighty thousand. And it's crazy because you know the, the demographic that I'm people like. Yeah, that's a charge. I do that all the time, right? Like people do, people do this all the time with their. Uh, with I don't. Their, just in case the fans are listening, no, I don't. Clear up. No, not I, you. I, I, my <laughs> accountant does everything well, right. Yes, got you, got you. I don't. But it's a, it's a, <laughs> you're not you. But I know some people. No names on it, but like <laughs> um, they're like, what? They can charge you for that? Like, man, they try to give me 24 months for that and so 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 how did you feel then you know you thought you got over it you found out your brother did this and now you hear that they're trying to offer you 24 months what was your thoughts on that at that point um it's, it's a weird position man that i'm in uh because i'm the anchor right for my family or the, the family that i have left with my friends and my employees at this point i had like nearly 50 employees uh my friend you know everybody i've created a, a business for or a stream of income so my confidence was fake I was just doing it because I knew that I couldn't break because everybody around me would be like what are we gonna do now they needed you yeah they needed me um and so I kept this this facade on um but really in, in, inside I, I knew it was over but I remember you know saying that we were gonna take a plea and, and my my attorney was like man I'm gonna I'm gonna do my best to, we're gonna take the plea. Hopefully, we get some uh, good credit of you just taking this charge, and we're gonna go to court for sentencing. And I'm gonna beg for you to not go to prison. So you were taking the plea because what they were saying happened did happen. Yes, but no. And how we could have beat this beat the case was because if your uh, certified tax preparer provide you with information and and you follow their lead they are liable not you but it did happen so it wasn't you that did it it was the tax preparer's fault correct okay. and where where the clash will happen would happen would be okay we're gonna go to trial and it's gonna be him on the stand and you understand and how are we gonna, what documentation we're gonna have? You that wasn't recording this back in 2012, it's gonna be his word versus your word, and they already don't like it. Yeah. And so, you know, and he's already on their team. Yeah. So, how do you think that's gonna go? And so. The attorney, white or black? White, white okay. guy. But good guy. And so that's where we came in. So, making that decision, right? To, because you know, like, Anytime you take a plea, the, your attorney can go and ask for you to do no jail time, but there's still the, the chance that you could go. Was it that was that a hard decision for you to make to to say that you were going to be OK with taking the plea? Very hard, man. Um, and I had a false uh, piece that I, I didn't allude to is that um, my attorney actually didn't even know. We, we didn't know until like last minute and this happened fast like how the second go around happened that he was actually going to come and be a witness on the stand mm. and so imagine just what that looked like for a family like you know one brother to be on the stand did your mother try to convince her oldest son not to testify against you yeah my social media I got recordings on there where um, my mom is asking my brother why are you doing this don't do this to your little brother. And he's saying, well, I had to do the be what's best for me. And um, I know it's not true, but if he just get an attorney, he'll be fine. 
like it's li- it's real recordings that my mo- people think on my social media that the backdrop of stuff is like made up is the real recordings that my mom was doing to in efforts of if I needed to go to trial with it. So it just it got so deep, man. Um, my mom had developed cancer in the mm. midst of this. Oh, I'm uh, so sorry to hear that. Yeah, um, and but she, you know, she's in a good space now. We caught it Praise early. Praise God. Praise God. It just was unraveling. It was just life was just falling apart. You know, man. At that point, I kind of took it upon myself, and I, I kept everybody strong. That you know, whatever whatever comes for me, I got through everything. And the toughest moment was um before you go to sentencing, you, you get you debrief. So I came into Richmond early, and I was with my attorney. My attorney just he kept it a hundred with hundred with. He's like, man, I'm gonna try my best, but I remember him specifically saying, man, um, if you don't get jail time, it'll knock me off my feet. Wow. And before I left his office that night, we was in there late at night. It was like nine o'clock, and I had to be in court at nine in the morning. He made me pick where I would want to, uh, where I had to spend my time. Oh, you get to pick your prison, the prison that you go to. Because of his relationship with the prosecutor and the federal judge, he told me if if I knew then when the sentencing came, because I wasn't going to have a chance to go, I was they were going to take me right then and there. Mm. Um, if if he knew somewhere, he could say, "All right, y'all gonna take him right now. Can he say bye to his mom and you know his, you know his family, and can we send him here?" But if I didn't know, I, I wouldn't have time to be like, "Hey, let's figure this out yeah. now." So yeah, he um. You know, we, we literally got on his computer and like that moment was just like surreal. So you got on the computer looking for prisons? He showed me. He showed me three. It was three yeah. that I had to pick from. Which one did you choose? I chose this one in uh, the outskirts of uh, North Carolina, like in the midst of nowhere. And this is a backstory and I didn't even put this in the book. I have a bunch of nephews. My closest nephew is my oldest brother's son. Me and him is five years apart. We used to have our birthdays together and everything. And he was in prison at the time. Okay. And um, where I was going to go was going to be with him. Okay. So that was your reason why you chose that location. The irony of it is his father was who was yeah on the front end. So crazy messed up, you know, family dynamics. But I remember leaving my off- his office that night and walking to my hotel, um, which was only two blocks away downtown. And like... I really, I really broke down at, at that point. Um, Were you in the hotel by yourself? Yeah, okay. I was. Um, and I'm, no, I'm sorry. My my girlfriend um, was in the hotel, and I remember I couldn't. I didn't want to go back in the hotel because no one had ever saw me at the space that I was in. Yeah. And um, I remember sitting outside, and the only person, the one person that I, I couldn't tell and I couldn't face was my daughter. My daughter was ten at the time. And I remember calling her and she was just, hey, what's up, dad? And I couldn't even tell her. I just ended up having a regular conversation and just getting off the phone. But it's crazy how it played out. Cause I didn't tell her and I was like, and what was on my conscience the next morning was like, man, the next time I speak to her, I'm gonna be calling her from, cause she didn't know I had kept this whole four years away from her. And so um, court came. My brother had came in with the with the prosecutor. My family was there. What was it like when he walked in? What did you feel? Seeing him walk in with them, it was surreal. It was like it was like looking at something you knew your whole life, you looked up to. It was like it was cold. Like it wasn't the same no more. And it, and I never had, I never experienced or seen or went through that before. Of just seeing like the life stripped out of somebody or how you felt about them. 
Was he in chains or in chains or in handcuffs or anything? No, he he wasn't prosecuted. He wasn't in in any trouble. He was okay. Now, he was just a witness in a suit with them, dressed like them. He was there just in case if my attorney was like, "No, nah, we we're not going to take the plea. Um, we want to press the issue." And he would have been there to get on the stand to push their narrative, but he didn't have to understand because my attorney was like, "Look, let's not even go that way." Yeah. A lot of people don't know this to go into detail. Court and the decisions is figured out before you go before a federal judge. It's for the prosecutor and the defendant attorney to look at these guidelines and they both know what happened and to look at what's fair. And for them to figure this out and present this in front of a federal judge. And all the federal judge says, I'm glad you guys figured that out. I agree on that and walk on. The prosecutor was not budging on me not going to prison. And my attorney wasn't agreeing to no prison time. And it went before the federal judge. And it was actually a situation where the federal judge was like, hold on, you guys haven't figured this out. Hmm. And um, I had so many reference letters. I had the president of the college I went to. I had um, uh, um, someone at the mayor's office write a letter. I knew policemen. I knew... I knew I had a nonprofit my whole life. I had people that I mentored in prison that I spoke to every day, write letters from prison to the so many overwhelming documentation, good stuff that I've done that the federal judge actually didn't sentence me that day and said, hey, in 30 days, I would consider not sending you to prison if you downgraded your lifestyle. And he asked me to get out of the house that I was in. I had a, he considered a mansion consider all the cars that I had um, too luxury. I had 30 days to liquidate. And if I did so, I could come back and present what I had done. And he would consider um, giving me federal house arrest. So why why did he want you to downgrade your lifestyle? Did he say why? His argument was that if he gave me federal house arrest, I would still be living better than anybody. Um, and so that was his argument. And I okay. couldn't. I was able to work around some stuff. I was able to get out of my house. I had a friend that had a penthouse apartment uh, downtown Houston. I was able to say basically I was renting out a room, which was the square root, what was the square footage of what he was saying that he wanted to be. I was able to, uh, I had great relationships with car dealerships that basically like, hey, I want to sell you guys my cars on paper. You guys take over my cars and when I'm, I'm able to, I'll, I'll buy them back. Yeah. I was able to do that, and I was able to, in 30 days, go back to that federal court in front of the same people, the prosecutors, show um, how I downgraded my life, and he gave me 365 days on federal house arrest. Wow. Yeah. Was your brother back for the second time as well? Yeah, everybody had to come back to that federal courtroom. Wow. So when he told you that, you found out that you for sure were getting house arrest. Was it a sense of relief? Were you upset? What was it? It was a sense of relief, man, but because um, it's crazy to take somebody to the mental space that I was at because there's no way I could take someone there what it feels like to fight the federal government and deal with what I was doing for four years. So even if those people had said, man, you're going away for two years, it would have hurt, but it would have still been a sense of relief because it'd be like, it's a end, it's, I, I got an end to this. Yeah. Right? Because for every day, for four years, it's just like, I don't know what's about to happen. I could walk out my my, my house and the federal agents come grab me. I could walk out my office. I could be, it was times I was in meetings with my employees and thinking that about when I walk out of this building, they're, they're going to come grab me in, fr- in, in front of my employees. Yeah. So 
the sentencing or whatever it was, it was just closure, man. Um, and, and of course, I'm glad it wasn't go to some federal camp somewhere. It was in the in the comfort of my home. But man, it was, it was just relief. What were the conditions? You were under house arrest, but could you leave? Could did you have to stay in the house all day? What were the conditions? I never left the house for 365 days. Okay. COVID happened in the midst of it. Okay. So I missed that whole first wave of COVID. I had a restitution of $160,000 I had to pay. Could you have guessed? Yeah, there, there was no way for them to know um, if I had guessed or not. I just couldn't step one foot out of my door. Did, were you on tether? No, um, that federal house arrest, man, it changed me. It was the most productive time of my life. Yeah. I literally um, detached from the world, no social media. And I literally had set a goal. I, I had Amazon, a whiteboard. I had made a promise to myself that for 365 days, I was going to learn something. I was going to start something. Or, or, or every day I would have to have something monumental that I didn't do the, the first day or I didn't know. And um, I started three businesses in the midst of that uh, from the computer. I converted all my businesses to Zoom, which was kind of a natural progression because the whole world was doing that. Yeah, yeah. And I, I wrote a book. And my book didn't start out as a book. It started out with me going to therapy on every Thursday. And it started out just a journal, just sharing stuff that I never shared with people, stuff that people didn't never even know that happened or I experienced. Or, and I had looked up and ended up with two college rule um, notebooks. On the later end of my house arrest, I was just like, this could be like a book. I got on um, Upwork. I started interviewing as if like I do for all my other businesses, ghostwriters. Found this this family, this, this husband and wife, this white couple, it was cool down to earth. And they just like fell in love with my story. And was like, man, look, let's do it. And we started this book. And I got so deep into it, it was therapeutic for me, right? It was like, it was therapy. Because yeah. I was just letting out so much stuff that I had never even shared. And, it was no, I, what I realized that it was no one person in my life that knew of everything that was going on in every capacity. Yeah. And it was so therapeutic, you know, to just express myself with the book. It, it changed me. I know myself better now. Yeah. I understand how to articulate myself and speak about stuff that I never spoke about. Yeah. The most productive year of my life. Wow. So when you were under house arrest, you didn't have to like pee. Uh, or get drug tested or anything like that? They didn't have anybody check up on you? No, the charge that I took on wasn't a drug charge. So like that's, those are things that people think that everybody that go through that system has have to do. I don't do drugs or anything, so that wouldn't have been a problem, but I didn't have to do any, any of that. And my journey on federal house arrest was kind of something that no one ever experienced because it was COVID. Yeah. Think about going into certain buildings. Those buildings were closed. Yeah. Them coming to my house, people weren't going to other people's houses. That's that true. Point. Yeah. I actually got to cut my own ankle bracelet off because I couldn't go to them and they couldn't come to me. Yeah. When you cut the tether off and you got to leave the house for the first time for a whole year, mm -hmm. what did that feel like? It's funny, man, because, you know, leading up to that, I had begun... Uh, heavy anxiety because if you sit in the house for a week you'll be like not used to getting interacting with people but after a whole year being around groups of people it yeah. became like I don't want to do that 
man, I just wanted to take a walk <laughs> down the street, to be honest. Yeah. And that's what I did, man. I, uh, I just spent a lot of time by myself, just getting on the highway, driving in my car, driving far, going to eat somewhere, driving yeah. back home. I really was still isolated. That was a social aspect. On the other side, I had learned how productive you could be. Yeah. And that's something I didn't want to get away from. Like, yeah. I had realized like, yo, do you know how productive I had developed a schedule that I'm still getting up at eight, nine o'clock in the morning. It was a little balcony space at the condo that I was staying at. I was working out in the morning. I had a structure in place. I was doing like three work days in one. And I knew that re-entering into the world, I wouldn't be able to be that productive. Yeah. But you re-entered the world at a crazy time because, you know, right. we exactly. all were on house arrest. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that kind of helped me. It wasn't just right back to yeah. 2011. It was it was still kind of condensing, not a lot of stuff moving around. You know, what it felt like, you know, Federal House, man, it was like a relief, man. It was like a journey that I had went through and I could look back. Like, it was a testimony that, like, yo, this is crazy. Like, look at this testimony. And the kicker, the kicker that put the full thing on the whole piece, which is not part of the book because it happened after the book. Part of my sentencing was a year on federal house arrest and five years probation. Well, this just happened because I was off a year. I got handed over to a new um, PO, somebody that oversee your stuff, a young lady. And she was going through all my stuff and she was like, I don't know why you even need to be on probation. Now, this is one year into a five-year probation. Yeah. And keep in mind, probation is, I'm not supposed to leave the Southern District of Houston. I'm not supposed to uh, be around felons. I, I, you know, any trouble I get in, I got a report. A lot of stuff that come with probation. People don't understand what comes with that. And she just called me one day and was like, hey, how you doing? And I was like, hey, she was like, I'm so-and-so. And she was like, I'm looking through your stuff. I don't even understand why you, why are you on probation? Then she had asked me, like, what you what are you doing? And I was like, well, I wrote a book. She's like, you wrote a book? I had sent her my book, and she called me in the next day and was like, look, me and my office is writing a letter to the Virginia Federal District Court that we don't think you need to be on this no more. The next week, my attorney, Mr. Dinkin, called me and was like, hey, man, I don't know what's going on, but I got the corresponding the letter. You, you're off probation four years early. Wow. And I just was like, yo, what a story, man. What a story. Look at God. Yeah, right. Exactly. I didn't know things were so recent, you know? Right. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I, I totally get it now. But I know for COVID, there's things during COVID. It was um, a lot of the same anxiety, too, for me going back out in the world, working from home and all of those things, because it's like I got used to interacting with people in a different way. Right. While you were at home arrest. What kept you going? It's crazy. It was so much stuff going on in the world I didn't know. Yeah. What kept me going, I looked for every day to get on the back. This small balcony, I, I got to figure out the square footage and working out while the sun was setting. Yeah. That's what I looked forward to. It was to be so productive to when I get on that balcony for an hour, I made it a thing. I had this little boom box I had got from Amazon. <laughs> like it was a moment. I like I set up everything and I like just work out to like I can't I couldn't go no more. And it was like my release. It was that and just the productivity. It was something I never had done having a clean board and looking at day seven, day twenty-one. Like, yo, I know this now. I know this now. Yeah. And like, imagine day 50. And I'm looking at like, yo, look how much stuff I know now. Like I fixed yeah. 
I fixed my own credit now. I got at an 800 credit score. I started a marketing company. I run social media. My mom makes $50,000 a month now. It's just so much stuff. You know, I wrote a, I'm an author now. Like, look at that. If you look at all the other years of my life, I haven't been that productive. And I can literally show you, like, yo, day 21, I learned this and I fully know how to do this now. So that's what kept me going to just knowing that at three, 365, I'm gonna look back and be like, yo, you started X amount of businesses. Yeah. You know this now. That's what kept me going. Have your businesses survived COVID? Yeah, man. You know what Toro is? Yeah, the car place, right? Yeah, I started with two cars. I'm up to 15 cars now. It's a real business. What about the medical business that you, you had? So I've expanded. I'm in Dallas now. I'm in Houston now. I'm in St. Louis, and I have two in, um, in Richmond, where, where I'm from. Okay, so we need to have another conversation. You need to give me some business advice, huh? <laughs> I rehab property, so I buy properties at the, at the distressed rate, put money into them and sell them for, um, you know, market uh, value. I'm actually about to go on a book tour. I'm starting a book club in the metaverse. Okay. I'm excited about the book tour and, the, and my book club in the metaverse. It's amazing when things happen, how God can still cover you in the midst of the situation because positive things came out of this. Sometimes I feel like God just tells us, hey, you need to sit down, you know, so I can speak to you, so I can talk to you, so I can sow into you. I don't know if that was the reason why, but I'm definitely happy that you're in the place that you are now, especially with hearing everything that you had to endure. I'm sorry that you had to endure that, but I'm thankful that the outcome is what it is. To piggyback on, to piggy, mm-hmm. piggyback what you said, that was, a, um, I had got done with my book for uh, like a month or two. I kind of was just holding it because, you know, the world that we live in right now, it's, it's messed up. Uh, yeah. You put your vulnerable stuff in the air the world gonna have their way with it. They're gonna yeah. do well with it and use it against you. You know, a lot of just sick stuff. It was a point before I even released my book, it was it was done. I was like, man, I might just keep this and just be like, I made a book and you know, it'd be a stocking stuffer. Like it went to yeah. my mom and my friends. It was a turning point where a younger guy, I don't even know, and heard about my story. Some guy in Baltimore and was like, man, he we had a mutual friend. He was like, bro, I'm on a run right now. I'm dealing with all this mental health stuff. I don't even know nothing about it, but I, I know a lot about you. And you don't even know me, bro. I just want to let you know, like, you you inspired me. And I really, at that point, took it upon myself to just use myself as, like, a vessel to just, like, share my story. Yeah. I even got some of my therapy sessions on my page just to show, like, look, you can look like me, have tattoos like me, listen to a certain kind of genre of music, hang out where I'm at, but you could tap in and be aware of this side of things too. And we yeah. need it. We need it a lot. You know, whatever you got in your mind of going to see a therapist, you can you can erase that and it'll look like this. Yeah. One of my last questions for you, because we, we've been talking for a while and I thank you. I thank you for your vulnerability and for I your openness. You. Um, it's definitely appreciated. So your family, have you spoken to or seen your older two brothers since coming off of house house arrest no no i haven't having my faith and being a man of god knowing that i couldn't just carry that hate and um i couldn't just live with that because not even for their sake just for me for me to progress and go to where i need to go and and for me to evolve 
um, it was a point that like if I saw them, I don't know what that could come from. I mean, I, yeah. But I've evolved, and you know, not that I want that relationship, and I don't need that relationship, but you know, I, I've, I've let that go and transition to where you know where I need to be. Am I ready for like a dialogue or a conversation? No, I'm not. And I just I figured that out through therapy because that's just what therapy has helped me get to. Yeah. That like you don't have to force yourself to do something. You can take it on your your own time. But let's let's realize that like I can't carry that hate and that that anger yeah. and that what I feel um, towards them. So I I have transitioned that far, but I'm not I'm not nowhere near ready to you know interact or have that conversation. But not so I haven't seen them in regards to my family. That word family it resonates as trauma to me to be honest. Yeah. It gives me anxiety. That word. Yeah. It doesn't, it's not a comfortable space. Holidays isn't a comfortable space. And, you know, that's associated with family. Do you go see your mother during the holidays? I, I live in Houston now. Um, I, I did. I do go back to see my mom. But my mom's home used to be the central piece yeah. of family and, yeah. and holidays and everybody. That's where we all meet at. It's not that no more. I went there, me and my mom sat, sat at the island around Christmas and kind of laughed like, man, look at her, you know, look at how it's different now. Does she carry any guilt about the situation knowing two of her sons told on another one of her sons? It's crazy. And I'm gonna share something with you that I, I never even shared with um, nobody. And I appreciate your, you know, your, your platform and just how you going about it. My mom had a breakdown. Uh, my mom had FaceTime me. I was off federal house arrest. Um, my mom called never seen her like this before. She called me on FaceTime and was just saying that she woke up from a nap and she was like hyperventilating and was like, y'all, I gotta see my sons. I, I'm, I'm dying, I'm dying. I had a dream, I'm dying. And her eyes were black and she was crying and she was just breaking down mm -hmm. um, because my mom, my mom's still living and she popping and she look good, but she is older. Yeah. And for me, it was a mature, I had to remove myself from me and how I felt about my brother, whatever the case may be, and really look from her perspective. It's like, damn, she's still a mom. And yeah. she's still, it's still her two sons. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it don't matter what the circumstances, that's something that she want to see. And that's tough. Yeah. That's tough. And in the midst of just the journey, the whirlwind that we were in, she did a lot of stuff. Like, and she picked a side. You know, it, it happened to be me. She didn't pick a side. She chose the truth. True. When you choose the truth, you don't have to pick a side. Correct. At the end of the day, that side, which was the truth, was mine. Yeah. And I ended up feeling, like, guilty about that. Not that nothing was wrong, but I carry some guilt, and I know that if I have some guilt, I know she does as well. Yeah. Um, but that did happen. I actually made my mom start going to therapy. But I know that's something that she deal with. And I know that out of respect to me, she doesn't mention that stuff to me no more. And she doesn't mention him. It's spooky because when I'm around, it's like my brother never existed. It's yeah. crazy. It don't, it don't come up. He got kids. I got kids. My kids don't, don't even know that he exists. It's a crazy situation. There's other family members that basically took a side and, and was with him and, you know, consoled with him that I don't speak to. They don't speak to me. So the idea of family is something I struggle with because think about the other blended families that I'm now part of. Yeah. It's not a comfort space for me to be around those families. 
I can't conceptualize it and it's an uncomfortable space to even be part of it. So that won't be forever though, man. I mean, this no, is right. still fresh and this is still new and you didn't die, but a part of you did, you know? Right. So, right. you know, you had to go through your own period of mourning and now you're in a different period. And I think as you continue to grow, because you've excelled in some ways, but in other ways, you're still growing, you're still learning, right? And I believe that once you get to the next phase, then you will start seeing that different things will open for you and you will find a comfortability in other areas. I received that. Yeah, I received that for sure. This is a story. It's a story that I think will help a lot of people because there's a lot of people who have endured so much. Um, it's so many black men and I'm speaking about black men. I know sometimes people don't like that we use race, but I'm a black man. Right. And this happens a lot to black men. Oftentimes they will arrest them, take them to Rikers and keep them there until they can bully them into copping a plea for something. And a lot of times they never did it, but they take the plea because they want to get out of jail. Right. Right. Hearing your story is just it's sad, but I'm happy that the outcome is what it is. And I'm happy that you are where you are. As we close, is it any people that you want to mention that were there for you from the beginning? I know you mentioned your mom, but was it anybody else there that had your back, that encouraged you, that kept, that held you down? Because sometimes we forget about those people. And I think it's, you know, it's important to show love to the people who show love to you it'll be my mom it'll be i got a younger cousin um she helped me so much like with my just with my businesses the What's financial name? component corinne corinne that's my baby cousin speak their names yeah okay yeah, that's corinne one of my best friends keith my my right hand man he kept me afloat just our conversations like just being normal like yeah. I, you know just the bringing normalcy like in the midst of just chaos chaos is like Yo, like, remember we, this, that, and the third? Like, that kept me grounded. My other best friend, Aaron, he actually, he moved into that apartment with me that I had to do federal house with. So he was kind of like my hands outside. Yeah. Like, you know, then I couldn't get food. I couldn't, it's a lot of things. He just helped me with, like, stuff that I felt like it belittled me because I needed now someone to help me with stuff that I never would ask a, another person to do. So Aaron and um, my, my boy Tyrese, he did a lot of stuff like for me financially to just help me get through where I was at. Without them, I don't know where I, I could have got through where I got through. Well, part of the reason why I had you mention some people that have helped you is because that's your family. Family right. is not just blood. Mm -hmm. Some of my closest family members are labeled as friends and different things like that. But I love them as much, if not m more than some of my family members. Right. So whenever you, you know, you think that you don't have family member, that's that's your family. You right. know, that's your chosen family. Right. Well, George, thank you so much, man, for sharing your story with me, for trusting me to share your story. I know you shared it with a lot of other people, but thank you for allowing me to be the catalyst to share your story right now and at this time. I appreciate you, brother. Any last words? I appreciate you, man. Um, this is by far going to be one of my favorite top three podcast interviews. Um, I definitely appreciate you, man. Great work. Awesome, brother. Well, God bless you. Same to you. Wow. What a story. If you enjoyed this episode, then you have to get the book Double Cross by George Johnson. This book is even better than the story you heard today. For more on George Johnson, you can follow him on Instagram at 2xcrossed 
or you can go to his website, 2xcross.com forward slash memoir. And you can find his book, Double Crossed, wherever books are sold. Get your copy today. That's our show for today. The music used during the interview of this episode was produced by The Fifth Perspective. Thank you for listening to the What's Your Thoughts on this podcast. We truly appreciate your support. Our show is produced by Amir Ali. Our theme song was written by Amir Ali, produced by Adrian Brundy, and performed by Enrico Delves. If you would like to be a guest on our show, or if you have a question or you want to provide some feedback, send an email to WITOTpodcast at gmail.com. Our podcast is available on all platforms, so make sure you subscribe to our show and follow us on social media. Be well. Be safe and be blessed. Until next time.